This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning, Anchor. My name is Brad Koneman. I am the Gospel Communities Pastor here at Anchor and also part of Forest Lodge Gospel Community. I, th- I think Jerusha shouted out and she's not even in my GC. Oh. There's no Forest Lodge people here this morning. Yeah, represent. All right. Well, it was a great weekend away last week on Getaway up at Tookley. Who was there? Show of hands. Any any enthusiasm? There were a few. Did anyone enjoy it? All right, it was a great time together, wasn't it? Looking at discipleship from Mao Gill and spending time together as a church family. Uh, This morning, we're back into the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at anger. When was the last time that you were angry? Maybe it was this morning. Maybe you had a fight with your spouse in the car on the way here. Maybe your kids were really frustrating and it was really difficult to get out the door and you were really frustrated and angry. Maybe you're still sitting in your seat right now, like seething and fuming and bitter with anger. Anger. Um, I've, I've gotten angry a few times this week, but one of the times that I got angry was on the way home from Getaway. So we were... We left about 2 o'clock or so from Tookley and we're coming down the M1. I had cruise control on, going 110 in the right-hand lane. And I was coming up to overtake a car and I see out of my blind spot someone in the left-hand lane going really fast and like, they're not going to do it. And from the left-hand lane, they just swerve across three lanes of traffic in between me and this other car and like my heart is going so fast. Like Friday afternoon, right, there was that huge fatality on the M1. All of you guys were five hours late uh, to get away. And I'm like, that could have been us. You are an idiot. That is the stupidest thing to do. I, like I seriously, I never do this, but fist on the horn, held it down for like 10 seconds because it was just like, you, that is the dumbest thing I have ever seen. You are an idiot. You could have killed us. And I was angry. What makes you angry? Maybe traffic. I think traffic makes all of us angry. I had another story about traffic that I was going to share, but I thought one was enough. Um, Maybe slow internet, instant coffee. Does anyone get angry when people supply instant Jerusha's with me? Spoilers, when someone gives away the result of the game or what's coming up in whatever season of Netflix you're watching. Maybe horrible bosses makes you angry, or I know Reese is with me on inefficient processes. That would make Reese really angry. I asked Matt in, in the office this week, what makes, Matt Sparks, our lead pastor who was just here, I asked him what made him angry, and there's no surprises that it's related to state of origin. Uh, he gets angry when Queensland fans gloat about beating New South Wales, which happens every single year. <laughs> or maybe it's something more serious. Maybe you get angry when you get ripped off. When you see corruption, experience corruption, or injustice, or inequality. What makes you angry? And how do you deal with your anger? It doesn't look the same for all of us, does it? Some of us externalize it. We get loud and violent and harsh. Some of us internalize it and suppress it and bottle it up. We become irritable and frustrated and moody and defensive and withdraw. Regardless of what makes you angry and how you respond to it, Jesus has something to say to us today about the anger that is in my heart and the anger that is in your heart. He's going to expose our sin, but he's also going to show us 
the way of peace, how we can respond productively to our anger. And this is going to be intensely practical for us. I'm going to give you practical tools and skills that you can walk out of this space this morning uh, and put into practice. But I really hope also that it's transformative for you, um, that as you encounter God's grace this morning, that it will deal with the anger that is in your heart. So we need God's help to, to make that happen. So I'm going to pray for us. So I'd love you to join me before we open God's word. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have sent your spirit uh, into our hearts to convict us of sin. And we ask that he might do his work this morning, that you will expose the sin within our hearts, the sin of anger and bitterness and rage. And Father, we ask that we might encounter your grace this morning, that uh, you would uproot that sin and replace it with your peace um, through Jesus' death on the cross for us. Father, we ask that uh, this morning that we might learn to live in the way of Jesus, that we might... uh, instead of responding in bitterness and rage, that we might seek to pursue peace uh, in, in our relationships. We know we need your help with this, so please uh, work this morning in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to read Matthew 5 together, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. But just before we do, um, I just want to give you a bit of an update on where we're up to in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're three weeks in, Jesus' manifesto of the Kingdom of God. Uh, he's laid out the Beatitudes, the countercultural ethics of the kingdom. He's said that we're to be salt and light. Uh, and he's put before us at the end of last week that he demands, chapter 5, verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is demanding this impossible righteousness, this impossible standard to enter the kingdom of God. And everyone's listening to this going, that is impossible. The Pharisees, like, they're the moral elites. They're like the super religious, super righteous people. I can never jump over that bar. How can anyone possibly exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? And then for the rest of chapter 5, he lays before us six case studies of this surpassing righteousness that he's after. And we're looking at the first of those today. So he looks at murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retribution, and how to respond to your enemies. And he shows, using these case studies, that the Old Testament law was never about external obedience, the things that you do with your hands. But the Old Testament law was always seeking the heart. The the righteousness that God requires is an inner righteousness of the heart. And he uses the same structure for all of these case studies. The first thing he does is say, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes an Old Testament law relating to murder today. And then he says, but I say to you, and he shows the true interpretation and application of that law. Now, we've already seen that Jesus hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. So as Jesus is talking here in these case studies, he's showing the true application, the true interpretation of these laws. So that's where we're up to. Uh, We're looking at the first case study this morning on murder and anger. So it should be on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So what is Jesus doing here in this chunk that we're looking at today? I think he's doing two things. He's exposing the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the self-righteousness in our own hearts, obsessed with external rule-keeping, the self-righteousness that says, I'm not a murderer, I haven't killed anyone, I'm all right. He's exposing self-righteousness. He's exposing the unrighteousness of all of us, that we've all failed to keep God's law. And he's showing us the way of true righteousness to pursue peace to be a peacemaker. So self-righteousness, unrighteousness, true righteousness. So first up, self-righteousness. So he says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Does anyone know where that's from? That's the Ten Commandments. He's quoting number six, Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And then the second half of that quote, whoever whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's kind of a summary of the Old Testament judicial laws, that murder has consequences. If you kill someone, then you're going to face judgment. And we think, you know, all right, do not murder. I think I've got that one covered. Brad, I'll make sure I don't go out and kill anyone this afternoon. Make sure I don't do that. You might be meeting in your triplet and trying to keep each other accountable. Did you murder anyone this week? Are you sure? Can Can I help you with that? No, I've got that covered. Tick, I'm all right. I've got this righteousness thing sorted. And that's what the Pharisees thought, right? They heard this law, you shall not murder. And they're like, I've got that, I'm good. I'm righteous, got it covered. They were obsessed with external outward obedience to the law. And they were like, God, thank you so much. I'm not like those filthy murderers or those prostitutes. I haven't killed anyone. I've got it all together. Thanks, God. Now they had this, they thought that they had righteousness down to a fine art, but really all they had was self-righteousness, which was a farce before God. And all of us have this predisposition towards self-righteousness. Now, some might call it healthy self-esteem. But all of us are seeking to justify ourselves, to prove to God, to prove to others, to prove to ourselves above all that I'm okay. I've got it all together. But Jesus wants to expose our shallow self-righteousness by revealing the true scope of God's law. But I say to you, in verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So the Pharisees, they'd restricted the application of the sixth command to the act of murder. But Jesus reveals that the Old Testament law was never intended just to be about the external act of killing someone, but extends right down into the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Now, this isn't something new that Jesus is putting on top of the law, but he's showing that this was always the intention of the law of God. Behind every no in the Bible is an even bigger yes. And the prohibition against murder is there to protect human life. Life is a precious gift from God because God has given life to everyone. But especially human life is precious because we've been made in the image of God. So the sixth command is, it's against anything that tends towards the destruction of human life. But it's also a positive command. Jesus summed up the whole law of God as being about love. To love God with your whole heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And the command against murder is really a command to love your neighbor as yourself. A right application of this teaching isn't just like, don't, don't shoot your neighbor in the head. A right application of this teaching is to love your neighbor as yourself, to live at peace with one another as far as it is possible with, on you, to cultivate the inner righteousness of God, the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, to even love our enemies by overcoming evil with good. By reducing the, the law against by reducing the law to simply murder, the Pharisees they'd missed the point of the law altogether. They put their hands up, protesting their innocence. I haven't killed anyone, I'm all right with God, I'm okay, I'm righteous. While God says that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That's what John writes in one John chapter three. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Jesus reserves his harshest rebuke for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who boast in their own self-righteousness while their hearts are filled with hatred. In Matthew 23, he outlines seven woes against the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe your garden herbs, but you've neglected the heart of the law. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're filthy, you're full of hatred. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus' words here, they expose the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and of me and of you, showing that they've missed the point of the law. They claim to be righteous. I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anyone. But they don't have the inner righteousness of the heart that God is after. So what's Jesus doing? He's exposed the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And now he's going to go on to expose our unrighteousness. That none of us is right with God. All of us have failed to keep his law. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not just what you do with your hands that matters. It's about the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. You see, there's more than one way to murder someone. In God's courtroom, anger towards a brother is murder and receives the same judgment. For anger is always an attack on the brother's life, aiming at his destruction. Now, of course, anger isn't actually the same thing as murder. In Australia, you don't go to jail for anger. Anger and murder are different. And anger itself, the Bible teaches, isn't sinful. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Be angry and do not sin. There's a possibility. Isn't that amazing? There's a way that you can be angry that's good. Anger tells us when something is wrong, unjust or unfair, and it is an appropriate response to evil or if something has gone wrong. God himself is angry with sin. Anger is his holy, pure, righteous and good response to what has gone wrong with the world that he loves. Jesus got angry in the Gospels. We see him storm into the temple courts and overthrow the tables and crack the whips, angry at the corruption that he sees in the temple. He gets angry with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and he gets angry when death robs him of his friend Lazarus. But Jesus isn't talking about this righteous, good anger that's a good response to evil. Jesus is talking about bitter anger against another person. He wants us to see that the seed of murder is within all of us, which is anger. 
And Tim Winton understands this in his book Cloud Street. The main character, Quick, says this. should be on the screen. The jails are full of blokes we'd swear are different to us. The only difference is they did things you and me just thought about. That's still a big difference, said Rose. Maybe. The second's difference. But there's no monsters, only people like us. See, in Jesus' eyes, every single one of us is just like the murderers in Long Bay Jail. When it comes to anger, we're all guilty before God and liable to his judgment. We're all murderers, regardless of whether the hatred remains within or erupts in sinful words and actions. I want us to see today that we're all actually capable of murder. If we give in to anger, then we're on a downward spiral towards murder. And indeed, according to Jesus, we've already committed murder in our hearts. And I wanted to demonstrate how this actually works. What is the progression from anger to murder? And I've, I want to work through what I've created as a downward spiral of anger. So the first step that happens is that something goes wrong. You experience harm or hurt or loss. Second, you have an emotional response which might be grief or sadness or anger, telling you that something's gone wrong and you want justice. And that's, that's an appropriate response when something goes wrong. But the third step is that you have a choice. You can choose to heal or choose to hurt. The choice to heal is a choice to entrust yourself to God, to leave the judgment to Him and release that person from the wrong they've committed against you through forgiveness. Or the choice, to, the choice to hurt, to take judgment into your own hands and hold their sin against them. Now really, what this is a choice between is who is the judge? Am I going to play God and be the judge and hold this sin against this person? Or, I'm gonna, or am I going to leave the judgment to God? This is a choice between who is going to carry the burden of sin. This person has sinned against me and I'm, am I going to walk around carrying their sin on my shoulders, burdened by anger and bitterness and guilt? Or am I going to give that to God? He's the one that deals best with sin. We have a choice, a choice to heal or a choice to hurt. And if we take the choice to hurt, the next thing that we do is that we make a bitter judgment. We make a judgment against the other person, not against what they've done, not about what happened or the action, but we make a judgment against the person, against their character. You are good for nothing. You are stubborn. You are an idiot. I hate you. We actually reduce their humanity. We reject their humanity. We take them down in our eyes. And that step of rejecting their humanity actually legitimizes retaliation. Because they're nothing, it doesn't matter what I do to them. And so the final step is that we punish them. Anger erupts from within us in violent words. Rucker, you idiot! I hate you! And actions, physical violence and murder... But it can also, we can also respond in anger by fleeing and saying, you're dead to me. That, that's murder within, isn't it? You are dead to me. See, all of us respond either as peace breakers by attacking another person or by peace fakers where we, we withdraw and say, you're dead to me. And both of those responses are sin. And they both are rooted in the seed of murder within our hearts. One of the crucial things about Jesus' teaching is that he's after the heart and he teaches that bad roots lead to bad fruit. 
He teaches in Matthew chapter 15 that out of the heart comes murder. So this downward spiral of anger and sin and bitterness and murder begins in the heart. And this is exactly what we see in the story of Cain and Abel, the first murder in the Bible. We see that same downward spiral of anger. So in Genesis 4, I've I've got the verses up on the screen, we see Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices to God. And God is pleased with Abel's offering, offering his firstborn lamb, but he's, he's displeased with Cain's offering, the offering of the fruit of the ground. And Cain responds in anger. And this is really emphasized in Genesis 4 in the story. Cain is very angry and his face fell to the ground. Now, this is where we're up to on the downward spiral. We're at point three now. Something wrong has happened. Something bad has happened. Cain has had an emotional response. He now has a choice. Will he choose to heal or will he choose to hurt? He can hold this anger against Abel and take judgment into his own hands. Or he can entrust himself to God. And God lays this choice before Cain. He says this. God says, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door of Cain's heart. The sin of murder is already there. And then out it comes as Cain takes his brother's life in the field and kills him. So we see that downward spiral illustrated in that story. Something goes wrong, there's an emotional response and then a choice. Cain takes judgment into his own hands and then that erupts in the act of murder. And what Jesus wants us to see is that Cain is a mirror to our own black hearts. Whether you're a peace faker, withdrawing in bitterness, or a peace breaker, attacking with violent words and actions, we're all murderers at heart. Because anger is always an attack on your brother's life. But I want us to explore this a bit further. Why is it that we want to take judgment into our own hands? Why is it that we send ourselves on this downward spiral of anger that's so destructive for ourselves and for other people? Well, James the biblical writer, makes this diagnosis in James chapter 4. So he asks, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Where does all this anger come from? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So we see that same dynamic of something within the heart erupting out. And, and I, I see this in my own kids, like every day as they fight over toys. They, they want, you know, Gecko from PJ Masks. I want Gecko. No, I want Gecko. I want Gecko. And they, they both want it. There's this desire. They both have this desire, but they both can't have it. And so whoever doesn't end up playing with it, because they don't get what they want, that erupts in anger and then violence. And the thing is that we're all big kids at heart, aren't we? We want something. And when we don't get it, we become frustrated and angry. We become irritable and judgmental and moody and blunt because someone has stood in the way of us getting what we want. And then we go on that downward spiral of anger. We make a bitter judgment against that person, which legitimizes us 
speaking or acting towards them in a way that is sinful. And C.S. Lewis made the same diagnosis in his book, Screwtape Letters, of that, that what, what's really behind anger and murder is the idolatry within our hearts. So if you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, it's this correspondence between a senior demon, Screwtape, and his nephew, Wormwood. And Screwtape is writing to Wormwood to try and help him to plot the downfall of this man known as the patient throughout the book. Uh, and he writes this. It's about anger and idolatry, really. Screwtape writing to Wormwood. Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but listen to this, but by misfortune conceived as injury. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim, a desire, has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured and, as a result, ill-tempered. Now, you will have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It's the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a chat with his friend that throws him out of gear. He wants something, he doesn't get it, and so he perceives that as injury and responds in anger. See, when we don't get what we want and think we're entitled to, then we put ourselves in the judgment seat and we sit in contempt of others and then this overflows in sinful words and actions. Now, of course, we can't stop bad things happening to us, can we? But we do have a choice about how we respond. We have that choice whether to heal or to hurt. And anger against others does not produce the righteousness of God that God requires. Anger leaves us liable to God's judgment and the hell of fire. Is there a more productive way that we can deal with the anger within? How can we deal with our anger in a way that pleases God? God's word to Cain is a word to us as well. That sin is crouching at the the door of our heart. Anger wants to master you, but you must rule over it. How can we do that? Well, Jesus now goes on to show us the way of righteousness. A productive way to deal with our anger. To pursue peace. To be peacemakers. I was reading this week uh, a column written by Jane Caro in the Sydney Morning Herald. And it was titled, Why Are We All So Angry? And this was her remedy to our anger. Get this on the screen. What does she say? We need to sleep more. We need to play more, lighten up, laugh more. We need to consciously chill and lighten up. Only then will we have the energy to stop feeling so angry and rediscover our shared humanity. See, Jane's analysis of the problem of anger is that we're too exhausted and we simply don't have enough energy to deal with anger productively. Anger seems to be a stress response. And if only we were a little less stressed, then we'd be a little less angry. And I'm sure there's actually some truth here. You know, the more stretched your life is, the more you're likely to snap, right? But according to Jesus, anger isn't just a stress response. Anger is a sin response. And the primary answer isn't rest, but reconciliation. And we see this already in the Beatitudes Right at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus lays out the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. In chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Jesus goes on to give two scenarios applying his teaching about anger and demonstrating a productive response to our anger, demonstrating peacemaking. And there's two contexts here. The first is like kind of a worship context in the temple. The second is a law court. So we're going to look at both of them. So the first scenario is in the context of temple worship. Have a look at chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. So this is the application of Jesus' teaching. So, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and only then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus is teaching this Sermon on the Mount up in Galilee. And the temple, does anyone remember where the temple is? It's like way down in Jerusalem. The Jewish people of Jesus' day had to travel like 80, 100 kilometers down through the mountains to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices on the altar. And this is before buses and trains and cars. They had to make a few days' journey with their goat all the way down to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice. And what Jesus is saying is saying is, If you get all the way down to Jerusalem and you're just about to sacrifice your goat on the altar and at that very moment you remember that your brother has something against you back in your hometown, what do you do? Well, you don't go through with the sacrifice and then go back. He's saying drop everything. High foot it all the way back to Galilee, sort things out with your brother and only then come back and finish offering the sacrifice. Do you see how serious this is for Jesus? Jesus is showing that our worship is polluted by anger. If you are not reconciled to your brother or sister by your own fault, then you have no access to God. Our relationships with other people impact our relationship with God. This week I was reading 1 Peter in my Abide journaling time through the week, and I came across this verse in 1 Peter 3. Peter writes, Husbands... Be considerate of your wives and show her respect. Why? So that it does not hinder your prayers. Wow. If you're having conflict with someone, it blocks your relationship with God. Do you feel the weight and seriousness of this church? Now, just one more thing on this story. Notice who takes the initiative in pursuing reconciliation here. It's not the angry brother, is it? but it's the person who knows that someone else is angry with them. Second scenario, chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. This one's in the law court. Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So just notice two things briefly here. The first is the importance of settling matters quickly. Reconciliation is always urgent business. It cannot be delayed one minute. And second, notice the dire consequences of of ignoring the matter. For this person, it's judgment and prison. Whether it's the relational pain for you or civil consequences or the judgment of God for all of us, it never pays to remain in anger. Jesus wants us to experience the release, the freedom of reconciliation. Now, I know that there are people in this room that are in conflict with others. And this is not something that you can just sweep under the carpet and hope it goes away. This is urgent business that requires urgent action. 
Paul writes in Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it today and give no opportunity for the devil. The devil has a plan for your life. If you remain in anger and conflict, he's got you exactly where he wants you. So who are you in conflict with? Who are you bitter against? Who are you avoiding? Who is angry at you? Now let me stress the urgency of this. If we were to apply Jesus' words absolutely literally, then we shouldn't even stick around for singing, church. You need to grab the person that you're in conflict with, if they're right here, and go outside and talk to them right now. Because your worship is polluted by anger and conflict. So who is God putting on your heart right now and convicting you that you need to take a step towards them to pursue peace and reconciliation? Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, but the results of peace and reconciliation are worth it. At the end of Jesus' manifesto, he says, it's not hearing my words that matters. It's not coming to church or going to gospel community. What matters is putting my words into practice. This is the mark of someone who has entered the kingdom of heaven, that they hear Jesus' words and they put them into practice. So do not leave this place without putting Jesus' words into practice in your own life. And to help you with this, to help you pursue peace and reconciliation, I just want to quickly run you through a simple personal peacemaking paradigm from the organization PeaceWise, uh, who coaches people in peacemaking. So just quickly, there's four steps that they provide you with. Uh, The first is... The first step in peacemaking, get this, is not to go towards the other person. The first step in peacemaking is to glorify God. And we ask, how can I honor God in this situation? The second step, again, we're not going towards the other person yet. The second step is get the log out of your own eye. How can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? So first of all, we're going to God. We're entrusting ourselves to him. You are the judge, God. I'm putting this in your hands. I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. Second, what's my contribution? What have I done? I need to take responsibility for my own part in this. And it's only after you've done those first two steps that thirdly, you go to the other person and gently restore. How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? And PeaceWise gives some simple tips on how you might do this, to use I statements rather than you. So you don't say, you always do this, you never do this, you don't point the finger in blame, but you take responsibility for your own part. I'm sorry, I've done this, or I feel this, or I need this. Second, that you avoid making excuses or saying but, and that you seek to empathize with the other person and, and understand their perspective and what they're going through. And the fourth step is to go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? So I hope that that's a tool that you can take away with you, church, uh, and help, that helps you take a step towards pursuing reconciliation and peace with someone that you're in conflict with. First step is God, and then me, and then you, and then us. And to to illustrate why this is so powerful, I wanted to share a story with you uh, from MBM in Rudy Hill, which is the church that sent Matt, and there's a few people here that are part of the Anchor family that are from MBM. And it's a story about a man, Joe, whose whose best friend, Todd, committed adultery with his wife. 
I was watching this video was online, and I'll put the link up in the Anchor Family because it's an amazing story. Uh, so Joe's best friend Todd committed adultery with his wife, and then they ran off, they got divorced, and remarried. And Joe said that this was a double betrayal from two of the closest people to him in his life. After a few years, Todd and Joe, Joe's ex-wife, eventually repented and confessed. And Joe said that God softened his heart and that he ended up forgiving them in time. And this is Joe's testimony about uh, his journey through this process of reconciliation. He said, I never expected to have peace in my life again. But forgiveness took away my bitterness and anger and hatred and murder in my heart. Ten years ago, I wanted to put a bullet in Todd's head. But God gave me the peace where I can now look Todd in the eye and have coffee with him and sit down and read the Bible with him. What an amazing testimony of how the grace of God restored this broken, messy relationship. Um, And I'll put the video up so you guys can watch it because it's an amazing story. This is a deeply convicting teaching of Jesus, isn't it? About our own personal anger. It exposes our personal self-righteousness, protesting our innocence. I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anyone. It exposes our personal unrighteousness that there's more than one way to murder someone and I'm a murderer in my heart. And Jesus shows us the way of true righteousness to pursue peace. Jesus' teaching here shows us that we are all murderers at heart. And the heart of the, the Bible's story hangs a man on a cross that we murdered. It was our sin that held him there. Our anger put Jesus on the cross. We murdered the Son of God. See, God loved the world too much to leave us in our, stuck in our downward spiral of sin and anger. And so he sent his peacemaker, Jesus Christ, to make peace between God and man through his blood shed on the cross. See, the shocking news of the gospel is that Jesus was murdered for murderers like me and you. God poured out all of his holy, pure, righteous anger on his own son, Jesus. Not because Jesus was sinful, but because of the anger in our hearts. Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice on the altar for our sins. So that whenever you lose your temper and smack your kids out of frustration, whenever you swear at another driver on the road, whenever you make a bit of judgment against someone in your heart or it erupts in violent words or action or you turn away from someone saying, you are dead to me, whenever that happens, Jesus' death covers our anger. If you trust in Jesus, you are no longer liable to judgment. Isn't that good news, church? Because Jesus has bore the judgment of God against our sins, the judgment that we deserved. And we're going to have a time now to respond in thanksgiving for this good news. To again confess our sins before God, that confess the anger in our hearts and receive the grace and reconciliation that he is extending to us. And we're going to do that in three ways as always. We're going to sing, we're going to sing a song that says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And we're going to celebrate that good news by taking the Lord's Supper, by taking bread at one of our stations up the front or in the middle, taking the the bread symbolizing Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and remembering that, It was us that put Jesus on the cross. 
so that we could receive the grace of God rather than the judgment of God. And we're going to respond in prayer as well. Our prayer team as always is available up the back. If you have bitterness and anger in your heart that you want to work through and want someone to walk through that with you to help you think through how uh, you can be reconciled to someone, I really encourage you to act on that and to go back to our prayer team and they would love to pray for you. So I'm going to pray for us now and then we'll stand and worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, that you show grace to us angry, murderous people uh, who murdered your own son. Father, we thank you that his death is effective and sufficient to take away our sins uh, and that it, it wins us peace with God. Father, we thank you for the reconciliation that we can have with you through your dear son, Jesus. And we know that uh, we need your grace to pursue peace and reconciliation with others as well. So please empower us by your spirit. Give us the courage to go and be reconciled with those that we're in conflict with. Uh, Father, please may our church be a place where people experience peace and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation as a picture of what you have done for us on the cross and the reconciliation that we can have with you through your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.